great. Say one last thing just to give you all a heads up. We took up, uh, those of you who were here, you know, we took up a year-end offering as we do every year, and this year is no difference. And uh, this year we, just to give you a heads up, we took up over $45,000 for our year-end offering this year, which was huge. I want to thank all of you who are obedient, invested into that uh, by giving. Uh, But even beyond that, I was excited because we took up a general offering of over $90,000. And uh, that was really huge for us, the largest offering we've ever taken up here at Vintage. And the thing is that's great about that, one, is it's, it, one, it's, it's God's faithfulness to us, but two, it's your be obedience. And, and honestly, third, it's your uh, willingness to invest into the vintage, of, uh, excuse me, the, 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 the vision of vintage. And that, that excites me to see people getting connected, plugging in and being a part of what we're doing. Um, I, I'm excited to see that. We're going to have more like specifics as we're still trying to finalize numbers from the end of the year. So I'll kind of tell you exactly where we landed once we sit down. I looked at the numbers this week and I think they were a little bit off. And so I want to make sure we get everything uh, kind of tucked in there and, and ready to go. But I'll share that with you in the upcoming weeks once we know. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for investing and believing in vintage and believing in the mission of vintage. And that's awesome. With that, just a heads up, this is kind of like a family, family keeping thing. Um, January is a difficult month for us, usually financially, and we didn't meet last week. So this is just me lovingly asking, make sure if you don't for if you're prone to forget to like do tithes and offerings, this is me lovingly reminding you as your friend and pastor. All right, there you go. So don't make make sure you do that. It'd be great. All right, well let me tell you a story real quick. So I was gone uh, over over Christmas. I left Christmas Day, uh, flew out about 4 p.m., went to India for 10 days or whatever it does, eight days. I forget. And I had a great, great time. We were working with, I won't go into all the details, I was working with a group of uh, young adults that I've known since they were like this, all of them, right? And they're, it's amazing to see how they've grown, and that's part of the work that God did in me. It's like, hey, Steve, I've really raised them up as young adults, as young men and women who are literally, like some of them are reaching and pastoring and unreached people groups in Asia. Uh, we've got some working with Buddhist monks in Nepal. We've got others who are doing business, this mission, opening up coffee houses for the perp- in, in India for the purpose of taking that money and investing into other local ministries. I mean, it's just really, really cool stuff, right? Things that I look at and go, my gosh, this is so far beyond me. And, and I mean, I was incredibly humbled to be there, to be completely honest with you. And it was really cool as I was sitting in one of the, uh, the meetings. We took time and kind of heard each individual young adult take time, kind of share what they were doing and then share prayer requests. And we laid hands on them and prayed for them and just kind of spoke the things over them. We felt like God was speaking, right? So this little girl named Sammy, she was was one of the newest ones. She actually was kind of, she was brought in the last six months because she was friends with some of the young adults from Karube Home uh, who were partnered with. But all that to say, she came in, I'd never met her before. And so she starts sharing. I mean, she's like this and she's from Nepal and, and she starts talking and find out she's actually starts talking about where she's from and, and literally what's that movie with Brad Pitt and Tibetan monks? Seven years what? In Tibet, yeah, seven years in Tibet. And if you remember that movie, like there's this place where they come in, in the mountains, and, and there's all this Buddhist stuff going on. That's her village, all right? Pretty cool. And, and so she was at a YWAM, a YWAM, um, like, I don't know, it's like a retreat or something because she was partnered with it. And they start going through the most unreached people groups, I think in all of Asia or something like that. And, and, and they get, and they're all of a sudden they name her tribe, 
that was one of the, if not the most unreached people group in this region, region of Asia. She's like, oh my gosh, hey, <laughs> right? And so it's just really cool sitting with her and seeing the things that she's doing and, and, and then hearing her stories. Literally, she went out with a team one time into this area, this region, and began to, you know, kind of taking tracks and just building relationships and then sharing the gospel relationally with people. And they went into a, it was cold, obviously, so they went into a, uh, like a, a store and get in the store and all of a sudden this guy looks at them because he doesn't know them because it's a small town and says, who are you and why are you in our town? And they say, well, we're just here doing tourism and kind of just here. And he goes, what's in your pocket? And she like pulls out a track and then he literally gets all of their team, shoves them, like gets people with him, calls people. They shove everybody into the, the town center, right? And they begin beating the, the men who were part of the group, right? This is Sammy. She's like, she's 29 years old. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Right. And so she's telling the story of all these things happening. And then she says that all of a sudden, some like a debate kind of started among the townspeople. So we kind of like just snuck out. Right. And, and they start following us. And we get to the this little at the end of a road. And there's a man standing there with a white shirt, black pants and a tie and a briefcase and says, follow me. I know some vill- I know some trails to the village. I can get you to a safe place. The next village over. Right. So they begin kind of traipsing through and the whole whole time they're trying to connect with this guy who's in that village who's lived there his entire life and he was that was kind of their person of peace right their connection point in town so anyway they go on and uh, through the village excuse me through all the trails and get there and all of a sudden he gets to the end of the trail and says this is as far as i go you're safe now and she's like oh my gosh and so they say who are you he said well i'm the pastor of this village and they said, oh, my gosh, thank you. They hugged and they went off. Well, they made their connection a couple minutes later with their with this guy who was their person in the village. And, and they said, oh, my gosh, I can believe what happened. They tell the story. And he's just like dumbfounded. And, and said, also, we got to the end of this road. And there was this man there. And he leads us through. And he goes, who was the man? He said, well, he's the pastor of your village. And she goes, we don't have because we don't have a pastor in our village. She'd been let out by an angel. All the way through these trails that get to the other side. You know, I tell you that story because I sat there as a pastor from Dallas, Georgia, right? Ministering a bunch of, among us, our suburban, our suburban, you know, middle class. I'm going, Jesus, there's something about her life that drastically challenges me. Like I sit there in the moment and I'm like, God, here's a 29-year-old girl literally risking her life for the sake of the gospel with great passion. Like literally as he's sitting there just gritting her teeth as she's telling these stories about trusting Jesus and the passion of the Lord and just wanting to live her life for him and give her life to this, this, the, the village that she grew up in, uh, Paul. And she goes, I want to literally traipse through where only Sherpas go to these villages that have never heard the gospel and give my life there. I don't want to get married because my husband will just get in the way. I want to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And I'm challenged. And I'm challenged on so many different levels. And I'm like, God, is that... And here I am. I'm like the pastor coming, right, to the teacher, the men of the cloth to come and share the good news, right, to teach and to train. And here she is. And I'm just wrecked. I'm just sitting there smiling. And inside I'm melting because I'm like, God, there's something about her. What is it? 
And the moment as I began to pray and to process and just to, and I spoke over her life and it was a beautiful thing, right? I just began to recognize there's a centrality of Jesus. A centrality of Jesus, right? That Jesus is the center of everything in her life. There's a centrality of Jesus that defines her existence in ways that maybe is different or even quote unquote better than my own, right? Stronger, more rich, more profound. God, I was challenged in the moment that I sat there and listened to her sister Anu tell her story. And I was like, oh, I'm like literally melting. God. I want to live with this, with the centrality of Jesus that lives so much aware of you, God, that I don't, doesn't matter what's going on, I just want you. I want to walk with you. I want to obey you. And whatever it may be, it may be big in the eyes of men, it may be really, really, really small in the eyes of men, but God, I want to, to live with the centrality of Jesus that I wake up every morning resolving in the moment, God, to live for you, to follow you, to be obedient, and to allow nothing, no distractions, and nothing else, God, to get in the way. Jesus. I sat there, and I'm like, and it wasn't like I'm like, well, she's from an unreached people group. She's got a, you know, Jesus is different for her than he is for me in Dallas, Georgia. And if I believe that, I'd be believing a lie straight from the pit of hell. Do you just know there's just one Jesus, one faith, one baptism, right? There's one. And I sat in the moment going, Jesus, let's do this. I want to be a part of a people who are doing this. I don't want to live for what's going on around me. I don't want to live for sports, although we can rise up, right? I don't want to live for sports. I don't want to, I don't want to live for the, I don't want to live. I want to enjoy things that you provide. I want to live with the centrality of Jesus. And so for the upcoming, upcoming weeks, we're going to be talking about family resolutions, right? And we're going to be kind of focusing on specifically your marriages and, and your parenting, right, and your finances. But the reality and, and the idea of the centrality of Jesus in the middle of all of those. But the reality is it's not just talking about those things. We sang this song. I forget the, I don't know the lyrics, but the very end like, that you would then send me. Build so that you can send. And so as we dive in the upcoming weeks in this morning, I want you to recognize for the upcoming weeks what we're talking Everybody pay attention. We're talking about a centrality of Jesus in every facet of your being. And all that we talk about, it ultimately comes back to this point. Listen, you look at me. The centrality of Jesus, center point. He is the center. Everything revolves around him. Everything we think about revolves around revolves around him. Every decision that we make revolves around him. Everything that I do to love God revolves around Jesus. And everything that I do to love my spouse, to love my children, and with my finances revolves around Jesus. Because the idea is this, Jesus, if I make decisions based on the centrality of Jesus and I'm following you, keeping in step with your spirit, God, then you will pour out your spirit. Right. There'll be grace present in the moment because, God, I've opened myself up for the pathway of your grace to flow in power. Jesus, will you have your way? So that's what we're talking about. So in the context of that, that's why I make resolutions. In the context of resolutions, we have these things that we want to move our life and we want to move forward, move in a positive direction. And so 
it, it, this harvest was talking about. We make resolutions, we make personal resolutions, right? Firm decisions to do or to not do something for the purpose of enhancing our lives, right? So you make these resolutions. You come to 2017 and you look back on your year and you look back at your failures, look at your successes, and you see these things in your personal life that you want to do. So you make a firm t- t- decision to either do something I wasn't doing or not to do something that I was doing, right? Don't eat sugar. That is not my resolution. Praise God, right? And that's because I want my life to be enhanced. I want something of breakthrough, right? So we make these resolutions. And it's beautiful. These, these resolutions can be healthy as we focus on growth areas where we fell short and want to improve on this year, right? We make decisions that if followed through on could truly change our lives. And for most of our personal resolutions, they're noble. We want to lose weight, get in shape, spend more wisely, etc. However, I want to invite you this morning into this conversation about family resolutions, because family resolutions are a little bit different. They are selfless resolutions, that we are firm in our decision to do something for the purpose of enhancing the lives of those that are around us as we focus on marriages, parenting, and finances, but all these other issues that you face in life. The centrality of Jesus and intentionality of centrality of Jesus so that everything that we do as, a, as, as we make resolutions is ultimately to give our life on behalf of others so that they can live enhanced lives, so that they can grow. So we begin by looking at Paul. I'm just going to look at this real quickly this morning, but Paul makes a resolution in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1 through 5. We're going to look at verses 2 and verses 2 and verses 5. It says this, Paul speaking, For I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Christ crucified, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Now you can go and read the whole thing for yourself. I kind of took his two primary points and put them together. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ crucified, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Power. God, Paul made a resolution. Paul made a resolution. It was a selfless resolution. It was a resolution focused on what was best for those that he was in relationship with, right? A resolution that connected with the heartbeat of God. He said, I'm going to, listen, he literally, he left Athens, Greece, right after he just preached in the Areopagus, had just preached this fantastic, from the theologians say the most powerful sermon he ever preached, right, with a little bit of results, and he gets on the boat. We don't know exactly what's stirring and going on in the heart uh, of, of, of Paul, but there's something going on inside where he begins to pray that caused him to resolve that, listen, when I leave this people to come to this people in Corinth, I'm going to make a resolution to know nothing among them except Christ crucified. I'm going to make much of Jesus. I'm going to exalt him. I'm going to make sure that no one is focusing on me. No one's talking about my name, that no one is ultimately speaking about me. I want them to speak about Jesus. I want their faith to reside not in a human being, but I want it to reside in in God's power and the goodness of God and the reality of Jesus. There's a resolution. And you recognize this. It was selfless. Why? Because I don't know if you know this or not, and you've probably never met a single pastor like this, but sometimes pastors are egomaniacs. Like, they love having a church be all about them and focus around them and people to honor them by talking about how great they are and to never disagree with them. They love to big things about themselves, right? And so Paul comes in the moment and says, man... 
I could go and lay hands on the sick and all this kind of stuff, which he actually did. But in it, he came preaching Christ crucified, focusing on Jesus saying, because it's really, really important to me. I'm resolving to make sure that I'm not glorified. I'm recognizing that Jesus has to be raised up and glorified. The centrality of Jesus in the context of a relationship with his spiritual family in Corinth. Resolving that they know not him primarily, but Jesus, the cross, Christ crucified. So that their faith might not rest on words of human wisdom, but on God's power. He resolved to get out of the way so Jesus could be the object of their faith. Paul did this. And the idea for us is that we have to come to a place that as we make these family resolutions with an intentionality of the centrality of Jesus and all of our being, that there's a, we are resolved to know Jesus and to lift him up and to make all things about him. So let's begin here this morning. Our first, our family resolutions must begin with humility. Our family resolutions in the context of all that we're doing, they must begin with humility. Family resolutions like Paul's resolution don't begin with what's best for me. I'm not looking at my marriage about what I can get out of it. I'm not looking at my spouse, what they need to do to make my life better. I'm not looking at my children to make sure that they make me happy and do what I need them to do to make my life complete and full. I'm coming in the moment and saying, God, it's not about me. It's about them. It's not about what I'm doing with my finances and how I go, how I gather them for myself. Jesus, it belongs to you. How do you want me to honor you with everything that I have, Jesus? It begins with humility. It begins with not what's best for me, but it begins with what is God's best? God's best for my spouse. God's best for my child. God's best for my finances. God's best for my job. God's best for my hobbies. God's best for everything that I'm doing. God's best for the kingdom in my life, the people that I'm sharing Jesus with. We must ask selflessly, what is the heartbeat and desire of God in all of these areas? And listen to him, submit ourselves to them, and say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. That's the resolution Paul's making. The second resolution we have to make is our family resolutions must center on and around Jesus. I've already kind of named this, but I'm going to actually make a point of it, right? Our family resolutions must center on and around Jesus. Paul's entire resolution with the Corinthian people was clear. Everything centers on and rolls around knowing Jesus. He didn't think about what he wanted. He prayerfully considered what was best for them and did whatever he needed to do to make sure Jesus was exalted in their lives. So just press pause. I mean, just kind of bringing it back. It's like, how are you centering on Jesus in the context of all your relationships and the primary things that you're doing to make sure that Jesus is exalted in the context of your expression in their life? Like, how are you exalting Jesus? Like, Jason Penley's right here. He's up here like jamming on the guitar, right? How do I say, Jesus, as I center on you in my relationship with Jesus, how do I exalt you by expressing Jesus most clearly to Jason so that his faith will reside in Jesus? Like, every relationship, the context of all the things that we're doing, right? That's what Paul did. And make these resolutions in the moment of saying, Jesus, be glorified so that all that we do centers on and is focused on you. The Jewish people had a great way of doing this. 
It's something that they did every day. It's actually a, something they recited literally twice a day. It was called the Shema. Have you ever heard of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? What's Brad went right there, right? No, I love that. So you've got the whole dynamic going down the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think I can slow down to say it, right? And it says this, and you will have heard it. Why? Because when Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Deuteronomy right here, chapter 6, 4 through 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, the Shema became much more than that, but it ultimately began just with this. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. Let me just break this down like language we understand. Okay, hear me, Israel. Hear me. Everybody pay attention. Hear me, vintage. Hear me. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's a statement. But everything in Jewish religion revolves around this one statement. One Jewish theologian said this, the Shema rightly occupies the central place in Jewish religious thought for every other Jewish belief turns upon it, all goes back to it, and all flows from it. The centrality of God. Why is this important? Because in the midst, in the midst of all the, the shiny things and all the other gods that represented something new and something exciting and something mysterious in Israel. All the idols that exalted themselves, all the passions that they were supposed to go after, they would say, but God is one, right? Listen, Israel, and do not forget the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God. He is the central power. He is the one. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the all-powerful. There is no other God in everything that comes at you and every thought, every other God that comes to try to run after you and woo you in is not real. Focus on God. Never lose sight of it. As you wake up in the morning, listen, every morning Jesus would wake up and he would recite the Shema. He would wake up every morning and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every night when Paul would go to bed, he would recite the Shema. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Never forget. Never forget. He is central. Everything revolves around him. You cannot lose sight of it. You want your life to make a difference? Shema, hear. Hear. Don't just listen and go, that was a great sermon, Paul. No, God spoke to Shema. Hear, listen, don't move until you've remembered. Shema. I mean, don't forget, if you hold your Bible up like this and you look at all of it, just remember, don't do this, but you could. You could take away every single word in it and just remember Jesus' words. It says, all the law and the prophets are summed up in this one thing. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He says everything sums up in the Shema. Obviously, we want the whole Bible. Okay, I know that. You're like, oh my gosh, what are you saying? No, I'm saying everything according to Jesus sums up right here. Like, you want to know? 
Someone says, what's the most important thing to know about the Bible? Love the Lord your God, because Jesus said so, right? Jesus said, love the Lord your God, by your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything finds its summation here, just as in the Shema, right? For all the, the whole Jewish religion. This is huge for us. It was the focus. It was to become the focus of their primary affection every day. Not on idols around them. Every day. Reminding themselves, listen to God, hear him and obey him and love him as we are loved. I mean, listen, even legalistically, because this is what we do as human beings, the Jews, it was beautiful. Historically speaking, it was such a serious moment for them in reciting uh, the Shema that they created laws. They created laws, the, the rabbis created laws to safeguard against it, saying it carelessly. They would say this, you couldn't recite it while walking. You couldn't motion to someone while you're speaking it, and you can't wink while you're saying it, right? You couldn't recite it while walking in motion, doing anything, right? You had to stand still, fullest concentration. You had to say it out loud with fear and trembling so as to give to God, Yahweh, the greatest measure of respect. Now, listen, I'm not sitting here saying, so let's go get legalistic. What I'm saying is when we look at this, we look at the Shema, recognize that it was so important. They created these these legalistic ideals around it. And so for each of us, when we look at this, we go, this must be really important. Like this must be huge because everything in life now will center on God. Everything would revolve around this. Like they're saying, listen, when you do it, don't say it haphazardly. Don't just just fling out prayers on the fly. This thing, when you say it, it's like all of your energies, all of your focus, all of your thoughts, right? All of your emotions, all of your passions, the very part of yourself. Listen, all the parts of yourself, right? In the moment, they focus on the Shema. They focus. On the centrality of Jesus. They focus on him being Lord in the moment. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. I love this. This, this the heart of this prayer. It says, we are called to an, over, excuse me, an everlasting preoccupation with God. I love that. We are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. This was the purpose of the Shema. Cause people to be preoccupied with God again and how they view their lives and the lives of their neighbors, right? I love that. All of these pieces. And we see this in the last couple of verses. Where I didn't read these, but it says, these commands going on in Deuteronomy 6 says, these commands are to be on your heart and press them on your children, talk about them at home, on the road, when you lie down and when you get up, etc. It goes on and says, you talk, listen, all he's saying is, this needs to be discussed in your family wherever you go. And do you know what he's talking about? Everybody pay attention. This is super big in, the, in our culture. He is saying to them, I'm going to use our language. You parents have a responsibility to disciple your children. It's not Timothy's job to disciple your children in youth. It's not Gerilyn's job to disciple your children primarily, right, in children. It's not even my primary job to disciple you in the context of vintage and disciple your children, right? 
You parents have the responsibility. If you send your kids to Christian school because you want them to get a good Christian education, it's secondary. You have the primary call in their life to disciple them, to speak about it. When when you're talking about it at home, on the road, when you lie down, when you get up, right? You have responsibility. You have responsibility, spouses, to primarily come alongside and invest into your spouse and to love them unconditionally, right? Not thinking about yourself primarily, but thinking about them. What is best for them? How do I bring about the centrality of Jesus? How do I promote Jesus in their life? How can I give them what they need without first focusing on what they're not giving me? All of these pieces, we have a responsibility for discipleship. We have a responsibility for investing in loving fully our neighbors and loving God, right? We have this responsibility. The Shema, the great commandment, must be our focus, and it should affect all of our decisions, especially now coming back to our resolutions. Do you see now how personal resolutions, although they may be great for you, can't be the primary resolutions? Like, do you see how the the nature of these resolutions that Paul made focused around the Shema, probably? Like, in the idea, like, I don't know that this is, I'm just saying this. This is like a what if, right? The the what if game you can play when when, when Scripture's silent on things. You can play the what if game. And so the what if game of the silence of Scripture is like, what if Paul was literally on his way, whatever journey he was in, he was on his way from Athens, going over here to to Corinth, and he's, what's what if? Okay, don't ever go quote me on this. I'm just saying, oh, what if? What if he's like reciting the Shema in the morning and God just pricks his heart and says, Paul, it can't be about you. Remember, behold, listen, the Lord, the God, the Lord is one. Don't forget that everything revolves around me. It's the Shema. It's the whole premise of everything that you believe about me. I'm one. I'm authority. I'm power. I'm, I'm goodness, right? Everything that they do in Corinth has to revolve around the centrality of Jesus. So focus. I'm just saying it's a what if. Everything in his life for Paul now coming to Corinth would focus on centrality of Jesus, making much of him. So for our family resolution, we have to begin with this idea of God and him alone. So coming back, I'm take a deep breath. Remember, we come in humility. The focus is on Jesus. So we're really intentional now in our lives to, for the Shema to make sure that our lives are focused on the centrality of Jesus. Because I don't know if you, you can't really lead people to Jesus well if you're only focusing on yourself. Like that was my takeaway. Listen to, to Sammy talk about her experience. I'm like, my gosh. I'm not sure I would do any of the things she's doing because that would make me really uncomfortable and I wouldn't have a nice bed to sleep in sometimes, but I'd probably get cold and someone might try to punch me in a, in a village. And I went, whoa, man, it's a lot of me. It's a lot of Steve in that, a lot of fear of man in the context of that. Wow, God, that's a, that, that really much of Jesus in that thinking. Wow, God, right? The centrality of Jesus, my resolutions, then the context of my relationships and things I'm involved in. God, then you have to humble myself. Not about me. God, what is best, right? They must start with his best interest in mind, not our own. Resolutions must start with our heart and desires focused on him, humbly choosing God's best and what is best for others in our lives. Paul resolved to know nothing but Jesus for the sake of his spiritual family. And so in our lives, right, we have to get to this place. Jesus first. And so practically expressed as we end our time, ministry team can come forward or worship team. Shema, here, O vintage.
the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. And we must, in the context of every relationship, resolve to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And Jesus added to it because this goes with it. And we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Who are our primary neighbors? People we're around every day. And it begins with our spouse. It begins with our children. And I would say it begins with our finances because the finances are a a picture into our soul of where we have control and areas we're trying to control. And so for us, it's saying centrality of Jesus. God, what are you doing? What are you speaking into the moment? So take a moment this morning. I invite you just to close your eyes as we come into this time of prayer. As you think about this nature of family resolutions, so let me ask you a few questions. Uh, this is, this is the, the application piece, so make sure you pay attention. So think about the Shema. Think about the, the great commandments. You think about this resolution that Paul made. You think about the story of Sammy. Where is there a lot of you? Context of your marriage? Where is there a lot of you in the context of your parenting? Where is there a lot of you in the context of how you view your finances? Where is there a lot of you in the context of what you're willing to do and not to do? Where is there a lot of you in the areas of getting uncomfortable and of dying to self? context of dying to self where do you need to in a family resolution make a resolution regarding marriage and say God what is best for my marriage and my spouse with taking me out of the equation and allow him to speak into that God what is what is the best thing what is your best for my children and where do I need to humble myself to get out of the way Where do I need to sacrifice to increase life in my spouse? God, where do I need to prefer my children for their growth? Father, I ask this morning as we come into this time of ministry and reflection, we just simply say, Jesus, have your way. God, I pray that you would begin the stirring in our hearts, Lord, of the Shema, the centrality of Jesus and being intentional about that. I pray this in your name. I will say, I would invite you, if you talk of the rule of life at the end of emotionally healthy spirituality practices that we can engage that, that cause us to slow down to be with Jesus, the Shema is one of them. I do every day focusing on the centrality of Jesus. I just want to invite you to add that to your life. That's something this morning that's really convicting for you. And here's how we're going to respond. Obviously, you're processing these questions. If you came this morning ready to give, our offering baskets are here. So you just give as the Lord leads. And we have a little basket back there between doors and the giving kiosk outside. Communion available. If you want to celebrate the gospel of Jesus today through communion, recognizing his body, 
broken, his blood poured out for you to come and to celebrate the life of Jesus and invite you to come this morning. We have ministry teams who can come forward right now. And as you watch them come forward, these are people who we have highlighted and trained to come alongside and just to pray for you and needs that you have. Things that like, golly, I'm really struggling in this area. Could you please pray? I need healing this area. Please pray. I'm struggling with something here in my life. Please pray. Whatever it may be, we would love to pray for you this morning. Pray breakthrough and, and God's best for you. So, it's already 1221 exactly. We're officially done for the morning. Don't forget to sign up before you leave. Things you need to sign up for. But God wants to move this morning. Give him space to do so. I love you. Talk to you soon.